You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, June 11th, 2014, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Jay Novella. Say, I love you. I will. <laughs> wow. And Evan Bernstein. Well, I don't think I can top that. I'll just say hi, everyone. Hey, Evan. Hello. Hello. Is that your little cherub, Jay? Yes, he was in my lap. I was saying goodnight to him. And uh, <laughs> just then, my wife just took him away. Oh, my God. I love him. Of course I do. He's epic. Uh, so Rebecca can't be with us this evening, so we'll have to soldier on without her. Uh, Evan, you're going to cover this day in skepticism. I shall. And it was June 14th, 1949. Albert the second became the first monkey in space as his flight reached 134 kilometers, which is past the Carmen line. K-A-R-M-A-N. But the A's have, you know, those little accents over the, over each of them. That's the line uh, that, uh, makes you officially, uh, into space. If you cross that line, you are technically in space. And Albert II became the first, Albert II became the first monkey to do so. Yeah, so before humans went into space, uh, we had to send up some different various animals, obviously, to do testing. And fruit flies were actually the first animals to uh, to go up, and uh, they came back intact. Uh, eventually, we got up to uh, monkeys. Uh, Albert I was the first monkey, uh, but didn't make it to the threshold of having gone into space, but fortunately also did not survive the trip. Albert II did make it to space. Unfortunately, the parachute failed upon re-entry, and uh, he didn't survive the trip either. Well, he survived but, the trip. Uh, he just died on impact. Uh, okay, yes. Well, if you want to get he survived, yeah. He survived up to the very end of the trip. Right, How about that? Exactly. <laughs> and oh, there was an Albert III, an Albert IV, and Albert V, and they all flew aboard rockets. Uh, none survived their flights. They either died on impact or during the flight. Um, you know, but uh, you, look, these little creatures uh, made a great sacrifice as far as our our space uh, ambitions went. And who, you know, look, they probably saved the lives of of people. I, I don't doubt it. So they're, they're little monkey heroes. <laughs> they had the right monkey stuff, I guess. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <Nice>. simian stuff. <laughs> Yeah, one of so most of them were uh, rhesus monkeys, but Albert the Third was a Cynomolgus monkey. You guys know what that is? I'm no, unfamiliar no. with that one. That's a crab-eating macaque, apparently. <laughs> they only eat crabs? Uh, probably not. It's just like they probably love it more than any other. Someone should give those guys some butter. They'll freak. <laughs> or bacon, bacon check. Albert Albert the Second um, flew aboard a V2 rocket. Remember the V2 rockets? They were oh, yeah. used against the Allies by Hitler's regime in uh, World War II. So here, so crab-eating macaques typically do not consume crabs. They are opportunistic omnivores. Okay, so it's amazing how many animals have our their names are misnomers. You know? Yeah, right. Yeah, like the jumbo shrimp. You know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like the uh, you know the koala bear is not a bear. Oh, right. Right. Yes. The Tasmanian devil is actually a demon. I don't know if you were in that. <laughs> oh, okay. There's that. I thought it was just a There's minor that. demon. Yeah. That's a good one. <laughs> this, the uh, sun bear is not actually a sun. The uh, cockatoo is not a, well. Uh, yeah, it kind of speaks for itself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it only the, has uh, one. <laughs> the sloth is actually my ex-wife, so go and figure. 
Yeah. Oh, oh boy. Hey, how you doing out there? Like jellyfish or not fish? <laughs> oh yeah, starfish, not, not stars. Also, I mean, not fish. also not a fish. The Holy Roman Empire was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. Yeah, not that's a, not an the, animal either, but that's okay. <laughs> the sucker-footed bat is not a sucker. They're pretty damn smart. Bob, apparently for the first time ever, someone or I should say something has passed the infamous Turing test. Yes. Big news, big news. Um, claims are, are being made that finally and officially the Turing test has been passed in which a software program fools enough people into thinking it's human, which is pretty much a, what it is. And uh, so all I've got to say about that is that I've never been so disappointed <laughs> at, at what was supposed to be a huge milestone in my life that it wasn't. And uh, so frustrating. But let me go into a little bit of background. The Turing test, if you're not that familiar, was devised by Alan Turing in 1950. Uh, Turing was just a true legend in so many fields. Uh, a, you know, artificial intelligence, mathematics, just to, just to scratch the surface. He came up uh, with the fund- fundamental model of computation, the Turing machine that's used in theoretical computer science. He helped crack the, the Nazi uh, code cipher in World War II. And the list goes on and on. And then he was persecuted for being gay. Oh my God, that's oh, that was yeah. horrible. That was horrible. Committed suicide. One of right? the great injustices in history. Yeah. Oh, it's uh, horrid. It's actually a little controversial whether it was suicide, but still, it was it was Ooh. it was horrific. But he wrote a paper called "The Computing Machinery and Intelligence" at around that time, and his his goal in the paper was to address the question of whether machines can think. Um, and you know that seems very commonplace now, but 64 years ago, it was it was quite a thought. He considered the word uh, thinking to be a very nebulous, uh, I you know, word, very hard to to define. He kind of was thinking of a way to to, uh, to get a handle on. He came up initially with the imitation game, which then uh, eventually evolved into his his Turing test, and then that kind of evolved into our modern conception of the, of the Turing test, uh, in which people interact through text. Um, with other humans and machines, and if, if 30% of the people think a machine is a person, then it passed the Turing test. That's pretty much it. Uh, th- these tests of artificial intelligence, uh, th- these have happened, you know, many times over the years, many, many times, uh, and invariably the, 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 the software fails at the test. Uh, occasionally there's a winner. People have been declared a winner. Uh, but this time it's, it's different, sort of. Uh, it happened on June 7th, uh, which was the 65th anniversary of Turing's death at the University of Reading in the UK. Uh, 30 judges were used, a lot of judges. Now, the, the key differences in this Turing test um, that a lot of people are talking about are the fact that this test had the most simultaneous comparison test that have ever been used. And most crucially, though, the really key thing is that the judges could ask anything they wanted. In, in the past, apparently, the, a lot of these tests were, were very uh, strictly limited. Uh, you really couldn't talk about anything. It had to be just a finite set of questions that you could ask. And I always thought that uh, you n- really could never even have a real Turing test winner at all if there were restrictions like that on what you could talk about. Uh, to me, that seemed more of like a some kind of uh, expert system to me rather than an AI kind of really defeated the purpose. But ultimately, uh, a program taking on the persona of a 13-year-old U- uh, Ukrainian boy named Eugene Guzman won the day. He convinced 33% of the judges that he was Pinocchio. I mean, that he was a real boy. And he actually came very close a few years ago at, at another Turing test. He was 29% or 28. And he just, he just missed it. So the question is, did he really pass the Turing test? Guys, just give me a quick uh, yes or no. What he did, did, did he pass the Turing test? No. Jay? 
Wow. Okay, I'm torn, but I guess I'll say no. All right. I, I think it depends how you how you define it. Uh, you could argue that he he passed the the, the modern the modern conception of the test. Uh, the, the real, like I said, it was the real first time that the questions were not limited in any way, which I I think is important. Uh, but also, I think you could uh, maybe more strongly argue that that he didn't pass the Turing test in, in a lot of ways. One of the things that really kind of pissed me off is that. Pretending to be a 13-year-old boy that's not even a native speaker, to me, that's, that seems very underhanded and kind of like a cheat. You know, that's just... It's cheating. It, it really is. It, uh, one of the, you know, one of the obvious ways that you're going to tell apart a man from a machine is, is the use of language, right? That's all you really have. So if you let a judge know from the get-go that not only are you this, you know, potentially naive kid, but that you're not even well-spoken. It's not English. It's not even your first language. So that that's totally baloney, in my, in my opinion, and, and it's totally against the spirit of the test. But I think it's even worse than that. If you if you consider the, the true intent of the test – and what Turing most uh, most likely had in mind, I, I think there's just no way that, that Eugene passed this test. And there, there's so many reasons. First of all, 30% is lame as hell. That's it's that's a ridiculous number, and it's not even it's not even real in a way. Turing himself uh, doesn't even seem to have meant 30% to be used that way. He didn't intend that. What what he was talking about was that he said that he he makes a prediction within 50 years computers would play the game well enough. That an average interrogator will not have more than 70% chance of making the right identification after five minutes of questioning. Okay. That's, so that 30% wasn't even really part of the test. That's just part of his prediction. And, and also he's been uh, quoted uh, as saying later on in his life that, that he didn't think it would be passed for a hundred years. So clearly that 30% is just like kind of pulled out of everyone's butt and it's and it's 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 kind of ridiculous if you think about it i mean if i had to just throw that number out there for for the modern turing test i would say come on it would have to be at least 60 or 70 percent so that's so that's a joke i i think the real bottom line here is that that eugene is just a chatbot. It doesn't really understand the questions. What's the, what's going on with the conversation? There's no level of thinking going on in, in any significant level at all. There's, there's not even an animal's level of what we would call consciousness, if you want to use the C word in this context. He's, uh, he's all psychological prestidigitation. He, you know, he, he tries to control the conversation and steer it towards interactions that are, that are actually pre-scripted and pre-written. Um, and even his amount of, uh, question analysis and parsing, from what I could tell, from what minimal, minimal reading of the actual ex- exchanges typical of Eugene, are I think it's very it's very minimal. I'm thir- I was thoroughly unimpressed, and uh, t- to me this whole thing was a sideshow. There, there really was no technological breakthrough here. Clearly nothing that I had been anticipating for for decades. It was really really kind of a joke. I, I think I mean really this is you know the Turing test was devised. Uh, decades ago, and it's been kind of tweaked over the years in, into into what it is today, and it's really just not, you know, it's really kind of a joke, and, and a lot of uh, artificial intelligence uh, researchers, including Marvin Minsky, you know, really think it's a joke. I think we need to really just come up with a new type of Turing test to to reflect our, our more subtle understanding of, of the mind and intelligence and, and computer science. Uh, for example, just here's, here's one idea. Uh, you know, you could have a machine look at a complex image or video and then ha- have that program describe it and answer questions about it and show that, that they've got some true insight on what's going on in that scene. If you could really understand a scene like that, that, that would be one aspect of intelligence that I think would be much more valuable than just having a slick chatbot convince you that, uh, 
that that it's a human and not a machine. And and there's uh, and there's lots of different ways that 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 we could really demonstrate it much better than than what the Turing test is. Yeah, this is thoroughly underwhelming. I mean, this just this is a chatbot that eked over this one iteration of the, of the Turing test. But Bob, the thing, you know, listening to your discussion about this, yeah. the, pro- the problem I'm having is, is that you're using, I, I kind of know the definition of the terms that you're going with, but those definitions need to be explored in order to even know what the hell we're talking about here. Like so what? like, like AI, artificial intelligence, what do you mean by that? Are you assuming that AI is self-awareness? Is consciousness, is thinking? Well, that's, that's what I meant by this, this many different types of intelligence. And clearly, I think the, uh, the spirit of the Turing test, to me, I've always interpreted as some level of consciousness and understanding and human, and human-like thinking. But that's only, that, that's, that's kind of a, a hubris though, really. I mean, that's just, that's a human level, uh, human level intelligence that we're talking about. But there's lots of other different types of intelligence and not necessarily, that doesn't mean that ones that aren't human-like aren't, aren't valuable. But Bob, that's the Turing, that's not what the Turing test really ever was designed well, to do. The Turing test cannot tell if the machine is actually thinking or abstracting or understanding. It's only judging based upon the output. Is the output indistinguishable from a human? And you're trying to infer from that whether or not it's actually thinking and abstracting, but that's only as good as the tester. And, and, that, and that's a big problem I have with, it, with, with, with a lot of us. I think these judges, some of them don't didn't really seem too qualified to actually judge. Yeah, and, fi- yeah, yeah. and five minutes isn't a long enough time. I liked how it was un- unrestricted questioning. But right, I mean, Steve, but I think if you could pull off a program that really can survive a really deep grilling, I mean, you, you could even accomplish a lot in five minutes. I think that would go a long way to uh, to making the argument that there's some level of, of conscious thought going well, on there. Well, Bob, that's the big question, you know, that – then this is I find this this is what I consider to be the most interesting question in here. For let me back up for a little bit. So first, we I think we need to distinguish between two types of computing here, or two types of artificial intelligence. The type that we have now, and that all of this is dealing with, are top-down expert systems that are using brute force in order to simulate interaction. They, they, they're not even on the track to becoming a like true Ex- self-aware, exactly. I, conscious I totally entities. Agree. Yeah. The other type of artificial intelligence, what you're, you know, seem to be talking about at times is something that is actually built to, to, to think and to understand and to comprehend and has some kind of awareness. The question is, can you brute force a top-down chatbot or something or expert system or something equivalent? Can that ever get to the point that it will uh, be indistinguishable from a human being, even under open-ended, expert, unlimited grilling? And that I don't know the answer to that question. How can yeah. you not know the answer, though, Steve? I mean, eventually, no. I mean, as computers get smarter and faster. Yeah, but the, Jay, but the question is, will you ever get to a level of complexity with a top-down algorithm that will be able to really be indistinguishable from a human that has actual abstraction and understanding? Or will you always be able to eventually push it beyond its limits, right? Because no matter how brute force an algorithm you use, it, it's never infinite. It could never be infinite. The problem is that our 
our brains, the way they function, they're capable of almost, you know, limitless types of analysis and pattern recognition and abstraction and thinking, you know, and it's like trying to predict the weather in a way in that once you, it's like chaos theory, right? It's like once you get past a certain level that you just can't brute force your way through it anymore. I think that we may run into inherent limitations in the top-down brute force method and that we'll never be able to truly pass a Turing test. I mean, one where you have, again, expert unlimited grilling and we may need to to shift to bottom-up, truly abstracting thinking types of software or machines hmm. before we'll ever get to that level. Okay, That's I've the been- question. But um, having said that, so far, if you look historically – We've assumed that you would need like human level true AI in order to be able to accomplish certain things like being a chess master when, when clearly you don't. A top down bot can use an algorithm and brute force to beat a chess master. So you don't need actual AI to do that. Right. So, so chess is clearly amenable to that type of brute force, yeah. but is, is human intelligence. Um, I, you know, you're right, Steve. I, I, I agree that we don't, we, we really don't know if it's doable. It might, it might be impossible. It, it, it might be, we, we could potentially eventually pull it off in such a way that it is extremely, extremely difficult, you know, to determine whether that's a, a machine or not. Uh, I think that might be possible, but then you kind of tiptoe into the, into the idea though of, uh, of the, the qualia that experience that indefinable experience would you know would it really truly be conscious or would it be just a pure pure imitation machine that that really has no no true self-awareness that so now you're getting into a p zombie debate yeah that's the that's a different level yeah but bob that's a totally different thing yeah that's I, yeah, that's what we call a pea zombie, a philosophical zombie. Which I remember we, we we talked about that, but I think that's that that's a valid concern. We might. So my point is that we may be able to produce one that's very very believable, but still not have that. Yeah, you know, still not have what it takes to be conscious and self aware. I mean, that's that's possible. the question, and that's what I hope I live long enough to see because I want to know mm-hmm. if we can use a top down algorithm based brute force system to like really really imitate human intelligence. Steve, you just or, reminded me of that Star Trek episode. That was the equation. Yes, that, that was it. <laughs> or do we need do do you need to build in functionality that basically would make it a self-aware yeah. thinking machine? I think that's know? well, I think that's clearly the way to go. I think it's valuable. We, sure, we could try both methods because uh, there'd be plenty of payoff from a yeah. you know, from a brute yeah. force. Absolutely, absolutely. But yeah, I don't think we're going to achieve that until we we try the bottom the bottom up approach. All right. We're not going to solve this problem tonight. So, Evan, we always like talking about psychic fails. And there were, there were a couple of worthy mentions in, recently in the last few weeks. Yeah. Hey, do you guys remember that James Randi once received a comment and he so graciously shared it with the rest of us and his entire community? The comment was that mediums are aptly named because they are neither rare nor well done. Yeah, and I think that's a very <laughs> that's, fun. that's a very awesome. I love that. I love yeah, it. Yeah. Awesome. As did 
Some uh, it, it was uh, an old it was from an old Swift newsletter from you know like yeah. 2004 or something. So and he didn't I don't I don't recall who, but he said it wasn't his quote. He he attributed it to somebody else, and he he said he wished he had thought of that. And I th- that's a nice simple way of summing up psychics. They're everywhere, right? So that they're they're neither rare, right? Big names, small names, world celebrities, the tarot card reader down the road. I mean, they're everywhere. You can't you know you you can't walk down the street without running into one. And additionally, at the same time, they're not well done. They are the most unimpressive lot of fakers, charlatans, and or reality challenge people that I think you might ever want to meet. But tonight, we're going to honor both their prolific nature and uh, lack of claimed abilities by talking about these two news items involving psychics. And back in May, there's a popular uh, British psychic named Sally Morgan is her name. I'm told she's popular. I don't, you know, in Britain, I suppose. And she's performing one of her usual shows at a town called Middlesbrough in the United Kingdom. Uh, but unlike countless other performances by Sally over her long career, years of doing her shtick, something extraordinary actually did happen that night. So here's what happened. Sally failed so miserably <laughs> that she actually wound up convincing people that she had no real psychic abilities whatsoever. No, really? Like people and, actually yeah, came to the oh. conclusion that she can't do, oh my God, she had to do so bad that night, it must have been an epic fail. The audience turned on her and it was one of the most epic fails I've ever read about involving a psychic. But that's only half the victory, I think, for the night. The other half, uh, for which we may not have ever known that this actually happened, was that gentleman by the name of Miles Power... He was in the audience that night. Miles is one of the co-hosts of the podcast called The League of Nerds, and he runs his own website called milespower.co.uk. He's a chemist by day and a skeptical activist by night. He always got a superpower. <laughs> Don't we all? Think about it. Like, if, if, if someone in our community had not been there to witness the epic failure by Psychic Sally, the general public may actually never have learned what had happened that night, right? There's no known recordings of the events of that evening. I checked with Miles and he was unaware of any cameras. He was there, but he's unaware of any cameras that were set up or he didn't see anybody holding up their cell phones and, you know, doing any obvious recording of the evening. And although most people left skeptical, more skeptical, then those had arrived. Um, because he was there, the whole world now knows that Sally so badly failed. It got picked up everywhere. It went, his story, it, his blog post about this night went national and international all over the intertubes. And here's how it went down. So part of Psychic Sally's act is that she asks the audience members to bring in pictures of loved ones who had died. And Sally takes the pictures and just by holding the picture, she's able, she claims she's able to communicate with them in the afterlife. Sally takes one of these pictures, right? And here's how Miles described it. I'm taking this from his blog post. She held the picture up to the camera, and it was projected on the large screen behind her. The picture was of a middle-aged woman, and by the clothes she was wearing and the quality of the image, I guess it was taken somewhere in the 1990s. So this is where Sally started doing the typical cold reading guessing game, right? Throwing out random names of people to see if anyone in the audience would bite, but initially nobody did. Um, and Miles continues in his blog post. He said that Sally asked the person who sub- outright asked the person who submitted the photo and please stand up. So a rather small, chunky woman at the center of the hall stood up and Sally once again began to get messages from the afterlife. Right. Sally then became in direct contact with the woman in the photo and began to tell her that there were there was lots of confusion around her death. She felt it was very quick. She went very quickly. She later went on to say that 
she has a specific link to her death and that she either died on a Wednesday or was taken ill that day. And so you got this, the woman in the audience standing up was not responding to anything Sally was saying. And she decided to ask how the woman in the photo was related to her. Well, guess what? Turns out the woman in the audience got the whole concept of submitting a picture of someone you wanted to talk to from the afterlife completely wrong. And for some unknown reason, she submitted a younger picture of herself. Wow. So she didn't realize that she was dead, huh? Uh, <laughs> gee, funny that. Yeah. It's like a Twilight Zone episode. <laughs> Miles described the whole audience roaring in laughter at that point. And basically the audience was lost, right? Yeah, she to, lost the audience Sally. at that point. Yeah. Lost the audience. Uh, the number of missed guesses by Sally increased quite a bit. The audience was more restrained when they were asked questions. They weren't buying into the whole routine. And the whole air of the night turned from kind of this dazzled audience to something very cold and uncomfortable that evening. So basically, one skeptic can make a difference. As much as the audience was left disappointment and dissatisfied, Miles, thanks to Miles's report on this, uh, it caught national and international attention. And we uh, have a lot to uh, talk about now in regards to Psychic Sally and her epic Unfortunately, these psychics individually and as a profession can survive these epic fails because that just doesn't matter. You know, evidence just doesn't matter for people who want to believe. An unsinkable rubber duck? Yeah. Is that what we call them? It's still good. Um, Maybe it marginalizes them a little, but who knows? I think she took a massive hit, though. Yeah, I think a pop-off guy came back. Yeah. You know, after being exposed as a fraud. She, and obviously Sally will go on and continue and continue to do this. She's not ruffled by it. She did, um, have her lawyers contact Miles to, uh, say that his take on events that evening was incorrect. And he actually forced them to take down their episode of that League of Nerds, but it's actually been gone back up under sort of a different title, um, back up on YouTube. Um, they, they claim that, uh, Miles used her picture without permission. Yeah, right. yeah. So that was basically a legal tactic. Uh, but in any case, look, the people in that audience that night left uh, more skeptical than when they came in. That That's a win, right? Even 100, 200 people, whatever it was in the audience. Okay, so that at least that one night, we have perhaps a few less gullible people in the world. Um, the other big psychic news from recent days is closer to home. Long Island, New York precisely. There's an official investigation into Teresa Caputo, better known as the Long Island Medium, which is the name of her hit cable television show. Very popular in America, travels also the country and does television, radio, you know, all over the place. She's, she's, you know, very popular. She's terrible. Ever, ever, ever oh, actually she's watch her? She's horrible. She does terrible cold readings. She misses terrible. all over the place. She was on Dr. Oz. Do you guys catch that episode? It was embarrassing. Oh, it was embarrassing for both of them. Yeah, a- absolutely. Um, Radar Online picked up this story and ran with it, and it's also making national and international headlines. The gentleman who runs the website SciFake.com, his name is Ron Tebow, he is conducting a uh, private investigation into Teresa's antics. Uh, she's in discussions with people who have been associated with Teresa for uh, for quite some time, pa- apparently some people who have some dirt on her from the inside, and he's also speaking to people who uh, have um, want to file complaints against her, feeling that she's absolutely a fraud. You know, they feel taken. They feel like they did not get what they were promised, either by attending her show, investing in one of her, you know, private readings or or whatnot. And he's he's in the process of gathering information. People get coming forward to put together a case, a, um, I guess a civil suit against her for fraud. 
here's what he says. He says, she smoozes with the audience, wins them over with her big hair, designer shoes, and comedy. And when they trust her, that's when she goes in for the kill. She'll ask the group a question like, who lost an older male relative to heart problems? And it's the oldest trick in the medium's book. Yes, we do know that. We are familiar with those kinds of tactics. That's exactly what she does. But Steve, as you said, she's horribly, horribly unimpressive. Really, one of the, one of the worst cold readers out there. She, it's her shtick. That's why she has a television show. It's her whole, you know, it's the, it's the woman from Long Island. It's the accent. It's the, uh, the clothes and everything, like he, like he described. Now, there's some people who think that there's a problem here with this particular case that he's trying, that he's trying to bring in that, you, you can get as many people as you want to give testimonials and get some inside dirt and so forth. But is there a way that you can prove that what she's doing, she knows for sure that she is a fraud and is willingly defrauding people by you, by using this technique? That's, that's different. That's a lot harder to prove. Yeah. And they, and they say, uh, Ron Tebow here, the scifake.com website, uh, has, has a long way to go. Um, in, in this investigation. And he's going to have to come up with some things that are pretty ironclad and solid. And, you know, testimonials and customer complaints just aren't going to be enough. It's an interesting tactic. I'd like to see how it plays out. You know, it's, it's there's too many, too many variables to really say, you know, yeah. like if they, if they have evidence of her actually like doing hot readings, getting direct information from audience members, then pretending to psychically feed it back to them. That that could go somewhere. That could have legs. Yeah, that that's definitely you know, that's not just like a stage show at that point. That's scamming those people deliberately. Yeah. Yeah, my, 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 one of my thoughts about this is that if they, if they pursue this and they wind up failing in the end, what if Teresa comes out, you know, squeaky clean in a sense on the other side? If she survive, if she were to survive going through that kind of, lawsuit would that therefore elevate her to a level that she certainly you know does not does not deserve right i fought off my critics i proved myself in court she would use that yeah. to her greatest it advantage backfire, and try right. to i i saw so there's real risk here all right, guys, we're going to take another break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week hulu plus you've probably tried hulu on your computer Hulu Plus is so much more. With Hulu Plus, you can watch current season episodes of your favorite shows, such as Modern Family, The Daily Show, and Scandal, and watch every episode of shows such as Nashville, Lost, and of course, Doctor Who, a favorite with the SGU. Guys, I don't know if you're aware, but we are literally in a golden age of TV. There's just so much to watch. There's just no time to watch it all. And Hulu Plus is just a great place to go and, and just soak it all in. So take control with Hulu Plus to stream these shows and thousands more as much as you want, whenever you want. Hulu Plus works on your computer, smart TV, Roku, Apple TV, Xbox, PlayStation, so many different devices, pretty much any streaming device you already own. Bob, how could you not mention the fact that Neil deGrasse Tyson's Cosmo series in its entirety is on Hulu Plus? Come on, guys. If you haven't seen it all, just go on there and binge. Hey, you guys could also get the exclusive access to stream the Criterion Collection movies. So you, you probably know that these aren't that easy to get a hold of, but you can get them all through Hulu Plus. So for $7.99 a month, get your entertainment anytime, anywhere. That's like, what, a quarter a day, Bob? We did the math last time, right? Yeah. Sign up at HuluPlus.com forward slash SGU or click on our banner that's on our website and get two free weeks full access completely free. That's a whole extra week more with this special offer when you sign up with HuluPlus.com forward slash SGU. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. 
So, guys, have you ever heard of the planet Thea? Theopolis? Yeah, oh, yeah, I have. That's the one that, that yeah. hit the Earth. Which Star Trek episode was it? I'm trying to the remember. Head, that's oh. the hypothetical planet, Mars-sized planet, that smacked into the Earth 4.5 billion years ago, resulting in Earth 2 and the moon, uh-huh. basically the Earth-moon system that we have today. What's interesting, so there's been an update on this whole, the hypothesis, the impact hypothesis of the moon formation. Um, there was actually a, a bit of missing information or data about that hypothesis that I wasn't aware of. So um, you guys are aware of isotopes, right? Yes. Isotope is mm-hmm. different isotopes of an element have different numbers of neutrons. So an element is defined by how many protons it has. Typically, like oxygen has eight protons. The most common isotope of oxygen also has eight neutrons. That would be O16. But but there are less common isotopes, including oxygen with nine neutrons, O17, or 10 neutrons, O18. Isotopic ratios, like the ratio of the different isotopes of oxygen, for example, are very useful in knowing where something came from. So like if we have a meteor, a meteorite, and we could look at the isotopic ratio of the stuff in the meteorite, and we could tell whether or not that meteorite came from the asteroid belt, the moon, or Mars, right? We could tell where it came from. How accurate is that? Extremely. It's very reliable. Once we know the isotopic ratios of like Mars rocks, then we could identify rocks from Mars. So there's no other isotopes the same as Mars. If if it's this specific isotope, it had to have come from Mars. Well, that's the question. The theory is that rocks and planets and planetoids and stuff that forms at, in different parts of the solar system at different distances from the sun because of whatever, the solar wind, the density of the cloud at the time, whatever, due, due to different factors, that that resulted in these different isotopic ratio signatures for that region of the solar system. So the Earth, therefore, has different isotopic signature than Mars and from the moons of Jupiter or whatever the asteroid belt, whatever. One limitation of that, though, is that we do not have any rocks from Mercury or Venus. So we don't know if they're the same or different, for example, from Earth. Maybe the inner solar system all has the same isotopic signature, like within Mars. We know that the Earth is different than Mars. We don't know mm-hmm. about Mercury and Venus. Okay. Now we go back to Thea, the, this Mars-sized planet that smacked into the Earth 4.5 billion years ago. So that was a different planet. That should have a different isotopic signature than the Earth. Meaning that there should be rock mm-hmm. on Earth that isn't matching all the other rock? That This is where it gets complicated. If Thea smacked into the Earth and threw up a bunch of material from itself and the Earth into orbit and that eventually coalesced into the moon, then obviously some of the planet would be left behind on Earth and some would be in the moon. And then we need you know computer modeling to try to figure out, like, well, how much of the moon, therefore, would be Thea and how much would be Earth? And the estimates are that it, the moon should be between 70 and 90 percent Thea and only... 10, really? 10, wow. 10 to 30% Earth. But the moon rocks have the same isotopic signature as Earth. Wow. So that that's the one piece. I don't think it's the only piece, but it, it was one significant piece to the impact hypothesis that just wasn't fitting. One possibility is that it's because, well, maybe Thea also came from the inner solar system and maybe it right. has the same signature as Earth. 
That's what I would th- yeah, think. That's one possibility, for example. And that could be true. And if it is true, like if we get rock from Venus and it has the same isotopic signature as Earth, then the problem goes away, right? Get your ass to Venus. Yeah. Well, we got it. Yeah, we got to get to Venus. Right well, away. there was a study published <laughs> recently. We have not gotten to Venus or Mercury, but uh, a researchers using a more just ba- basically better technology, a more sophisticated uh, machine to detect oxygen isotopic ratios in three separate moon rocks brought back by the Apollo missions, you know, the the ones that never actually went to the moon because it's all a big uh, conspiracy. Oh, that's yeah. right. So they looked at these moon rocks and they found that, in fact, they have a different isotopic ratio than the Earth. Right? How'd they miss that? Because it's Where? a very tiny difference. And it was just missed by the earlier machines that didn't have the resolution to pick up the small difference. So, for example, their O17 to O16 ratio was 12 parts per million higher than rocks derived from Earth's mantle. So, if that difference Hmm. is real and holds up, it suggests that the moon is at least partly made out of material that's a little bit different than Earth. And therefore, that could support the impact hypothesis. I wouldn't go so far as to saying, as many news outlets did, of course, that this proves the impact hypothesis, but uh, it certainly is potentially a re- an answer to this one nagging problem that wasn't fitting. Where do we need to go from here? Well, we need more moon rocks. Uh, we need to test this ratio. Also, it'd be nice if we could test deeper moon rocks. Perhaps, for example... The moon, the rocks exposed on the surface of the moon are a little bit different than the Earth because, well, they've been changed over the last four billion years from, you know, micrometeorites, solar wind, stuff that cosmic the, rays, yeah, yeah, stuff that we're shielded from on the Earth because of our atmosphere. Steve, so are you suggesting that we should blow up the moon? Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> well, maybe we might need to get you know get get uh, Bruce Willis to drill down underneath the surface of the moon and get us some moon rocks. I wonder how. So how is there anything he can't do? Did we ever drill into the moon? Like, did we ever go just past the the very top most regolith? I don't think so. I don't. No, yeah. I don't think so. No. What about what about digging? What I, I guess only ten or twenty percent of the Earth uh, would be different. It'll be kind of tough oh. to find that. Yeah. Well, we could smash something into the moon, right, and create our own crater. Or we've done that. Get down. We've as, done that, but I don't. Yeah, but, we, but we haven't brought back rocks from the impact. We just did it to like look at the dust and see what was in there. We can only measure that isotope by by bringing it back. We we can't. So far, uh, we don't have sophisticated enough equipment to to make a long distance analysis. Nope, That's unfortunate. Nope. Not with this resolution. No, we need to bring it back. Yeah. Hmm. So unanswered questions. Does this is this ratio uh, would a would a would a more thorough survey of different rocks from different locations on the moon support this ratio? Do Mercury and Venus have the same or different isotopic signatures than the Earth? Um, and how do different impact models affect the ratio of Earth to Thea in the composition of the moon? And does uh, Bigfoot like seventies music? I mean, nobody yeah, knows. It, yeah, that's that's completely unknown. Yeah. But this analysis also suggests that the moon might be a 50-50 mix of Earth and Thea, which is a little off from the computer models, but I don't think, I don't see that as a deal killer. So it's interesting. What, what I like about reading this is this is one of those completely like there's no emotional, political, social, you know, pro, uh, controversy here. It's just a pure 
scientific question and to have scientists like look at it from every possible angle, offer every possible alternative hypothesis and figure out like what evidence do we need to figure out if it's this or is it that, you know. Yeah, yeah it's just a next? scientific discussion using the latest information. Yeah, and, and being completely skeptical and exploring every possibility and, and deciding based upon evidence. It's just a really good story about how science is supposed to work. Especially just removed from any kind of ridiculous controversy. Yeah, no drama. Mm-hmm. Right. Pretty cool. All right, Jay, but even cooler, maybe, is SpaceX's announcement of their new launch vehicle. Yeah, it's cooler in a different <sighs> way. Yeah, a different way. This is the latest uh, vehicle that SpaceX has made. It's called the Dragon Version 2 or Dragon B2, and the unveiling was very recent. They unveiled it on May 29th. There's been a lot of, um, you know, a lot of hype before it came out, of course, and a lot of people excited. I saw some early images, and I got to tell you, it really did live up to my uh, my hopes and expectations. So check out the uh, the baseline information. The now we're talking about a capsule that, of course, will be sent up on a rocket. It will dock with various spacecraft or space stations in outer space, and then it'll come back to Earth. So this is really the, the capsule that the astronauts are, are in. Now, this particular capsule can do a lot of things and it has a lot of technology that we've never even seen before. And one of them, and quite the most impressive, is that this thing can, when it comes back into the Earth's atmosphere, it has two ways of landing. One way is it could use parachutes, but it'll only use parachutes if there is massive engine failure because it has four engines that will help it land back on earth and it lands like a guys like really a 50s a 40s and 50s sci-fi rocket like it goes up on a rocket and it comes down powered by its own rockets and it lands itself and it you know the feet come out at the bottom and it lands that is so freaking cool that was very cool to see the simulation wasn't it i know i just i watched it a dozen times it was awesome yeah so like Evan just said, there is animation about the whole thing works. So here's how it goes. It shows the aircraft in orbit, and it has a, a secondary stage on it that has solar panels, and it, it's flying to, say, the ISS. It docks, but it docks in a new way. Now, most spacecraft or all spacecraft have to be brought to the ISS with the arm. What this does is the nose opens up, and it'll be able to dock itself without the use of the arm. Very cool, very, very elegant, and very smart, right? Of course, we want ships that don't need to be slowly brought in by the arm. We want something that could do it on its own. So they show the the capsule de- decoupling from its second stage or whatever you want to call the, the thing it was carrying with it. It was really like a solar array collector. It goes up to the ISS. It docks. Then it slowly undocks. You know, I'm sure that, you know, lots of things would happen in between those two, people getting on and off, cargo being moved around. Now the astronauts are back in the capsule and they're going back. So it slowly moves away. It's back in orbit. It starts to deorbit. It does all the things that you'd expect a capsule to do. It turns, you know, the egg, the uh, wide shape or the egg-shaped belly down. The heat shield is like I think it's their version three of their heat shield, which is dramatically improved. It does its descent. This is this is going to be a descent. I'm going to describe where it just uses the gear, not the parachutes. So then the um, when it gets to a particular altitude, and I'm just judging from the from the um, animation, I would say that it was, you know, maybe at 60,000 feet. It was really high up there. The engines turn on. It starts to slow itself down. And as it gets near the surface, it slows down enough where it literally could just do a one touch down and it's done. It lands all by itself. Very awesome. Very impressive. 
The capsule can also land, like I said, with parachutes, but that is only going to be engaged if there's engine error. And it can land, guys, with, with half of its landing engines. I believe it has four. Wow. So it can land with two of the engines functioning. I love how redundant those systems are. Exactly. So safe, yeah. Now, check this out, Bob. Yeah. They can refuel it and send it right back up. Real, really? Yes, the reusability is extraordinarily high on this. That was part of the design. And, you know, one of the things that Elon Musk said at the end of the video, that the, the reveal video, was the, you know, incredible costs of taking a, a, a ship and either like half of it gets dumped in the ocean. And then, you know, even like a capsule, they just throw it away or put it in a museum. The, the, uh, mm-hmm. the reusability, you know, even with the space shuttle, they had to pretty much, you know, re-outfit the whole space oh shuttle. Oh, my God, had, yeah. They had to replace a lot of the tiles. They had a, they, you know, they probably did a significant rebuilding of all the engines and everything. I mean, it just popped. I know that the space shuttle, in and, in and of itself, is a powered vehicle, but you know, the, 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 the two are really. I'd have to argue that they're too dissimilar to to make a one to one comparison. But the idea here is, you just strap this thing back onto another rocket and send it back up, and they could the turnaround could be, from his description, like fast, like really fast. Yeah, because the uh, ablative heat shield, I think, it lasts for ten reentries. So every every ten oh, wow. flights, you have to replace it. So yeah, all they gotta do is refuel it and send it back up, which is awesome. Yep, it has eighteen wow. maneuvering thrusters that are used in outer space and in orienting the ship on reentry, which is which is very cool. Like they're using the same thrusters for both outer space and an atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, the capsule is equipped with super Draco engines. <laughs> Evan, Draco, sixteen thousand pounds of thrust. For each one of these engines, again they overbuilt it, and the rocket, uh, the rocket engines. Hold on to yourself, guys. This blew my mind. Mm. They're printed. The engines are what? Printed. They're yep. printed. Yeah, they're printed. No way. Say it, Bob. Come Say on. it. The engines are printed. I can't believe Holy they're printing crap. rocket engines. Jay, I believe there are four pairs of engines, so there are actually eight. Oh, you mean the reentry engines? The 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 descent engines. Yeah. The- the ones that they use to land. Yeah, so those Super Draco engines are the engines that they use for reentry, and they're incredibly powerful. And he also showed during the reveal the uh, the fuel capsule and how easy it is to refuel and how quickly the refueling is. And and he mentioned uh, you know like what type of fuel cells they are and everything. And it's it's all brand new technology inside the capsule, guys. I'm sure you've seen the pictures. Just utterly amazing. It was very lean. It wasn't cluttered. It, it was very, um, it just had a real sci-fi look to it, you know, the, um. Smooth and sleek. Yeah. The, yeah. It, they had touch screens with, you know, not a, a huge number of actual buttons in there, which I, you know, I guess is a better system. I'm just imagine it's, it's more versatile, probably a lot less wiring and all that. The seats and inner design. Are just gorgeous. Like I'm, I'm fully impressed about every decision that they made. There's a really cool, you know, it's not diamond plating, but there's some type of design in the metal on the inside that just is provocative and really, really cool looking. So overall, this is a massive success. If all the technology does end up matching what what I heard and, and what I read about it, and I, you know, pretty much I'm sure it does because of how heavily they've tested the capsule. It, it's cool looking on the outside as well. It's everything about it is a positive. I didn't get uh, when it was going to be used. I don't know how quickly they're going to deploy it. I'm sure that because they revealed it that this is you know coming or even scheduled. No, I think they're saying that like the, its first flight will probably be something around 2017. Oh, uh, really? That many years <sighs> out? So I guess yeah. they have a lot more testing to do. Well, they got a lot uh, of testing to do. That's only three years. That's not too bad. On to the next item, which 
you know, is somewhat mm-hmm. related to this, but Dr. Harold Sonny, which is his nickname, Dr. Harold White, uh, is working in future propulsion solutions for interplanetary travel. I, I'm sure you guys have heard this and seen the pictures. This is a scientist that's working for NASA, and he says that they are working on a FTL, or faster-than-light travel, using the Alcubierre drive concept. I'm sure I mispronounced that. This is a theory that was created by a theoretical physicist named Miguel Alcubierre, and it's based on Einstein's field equations in general relativity. The scientists that are developing this say that a ship that uses this kind of warp drive bends the space around it. I don't know how. I tried to find, I tried to find more information. I was just hoping that Bob might have something to add here, but it makes the actual distance shorter. So it warps space and it compresses the distance or just simply makes the distance shorter. So when it, when it gets up to a very fast speed, it's moving faster than the speed of light if you're actually judging the raw distance. How about yeah, well, that? Yeah, this that's it's it's cool. I, what I like about this is that it makes a serious attempt to to uh, to play with modern physics well. You know, it's nothing so egregious that that you want to run away screaming. But uh, yeah, if this this works, it'd be great. But if it's possible, this isn't going to happen within our lifetimes. So the the idea is that it uses negative energy to compress the space in front of it and then expand the space behind uh-huh. it. And the ship is in a warped bubble of space, and you just kind of ride this wave, and you could exceed the speed of light because it's really just uh, the fabric. You know, it's really just space time that's that's doing the moving, and you're not really moving at all. And you can't move faster within your warp bubble because you still need to obey that. But but if space itself is moving, then you can exceed it, and that's possible. But I mean, they're talking about about huge amounts of energy. Uh, and initially, yeah. initially they had said that you would need the equivalent uh, energy of, of of Jupiter, converting yeah. Jupiter. <laughs> yes, yeah, small and that's star. Clearly, or that's yeah. clearly uh, wacky. But but, uh, but, Bob, na- but now on, they're man. saying it's less. The now images saying, of it are so cool. Like, oh, the, the, the ship design is beautiful. <laughs> right? Yeah, they gorgeous. made it look like Star Trek. I want a model. They, they named well, it I'm, Enterprise. What was it XS One Enterprise? I mean, it's, it's beautiful. But now they're saying that they made that they, that they have a new design for the bubble where it wouldn't have to be that energy intensive. That it would be just the equivalent of. Uh, you know the uh, say Voyager one, but if you converted Voyager one into energy, you're talking like seven hundred thousand uh, Hiroshima bombs. I mean, still a tremendous, tremendous amount of energy. And there's there's other issues. You you know you'd have to somehow move the negative negative energy in in front of the ship, and that could be impossible because the, the energy might need to travel faster than light. Also, there was some research saying that uh, as the ship travels, it would g- gather uh, radiation and energy, cosmic cosmic energy, and that it would then release. When you st- when you came out of warp drive, so basically basically Oops. you get at your destination and it would explode type of thing. You're just a so, negative nanny, Bob. You know, I'm, I'm just sick, I'm sick well, of your negativity. A, I want this ship now, dude. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Come on, proof of concept. Okay, Let's go. How much you want? It times ten. That's how much I want. I'm just trying to be real. All right. Well, Doctor White, you don't want to be the first one the to lead go. Scientist is actually working on proving the this everything out that Bob described at NASA's Eagle Works, and that's at the Johnson Space Center. Dr. White is looking for these things, like microscopic real world warp bubbles that, that are theoretically believed to exist. And they're using an instrument called a white Juday, J-U-D-A-Y, warp field <laughs> interferometer. Happy Juday. White Juday. Yeah, warp field interferometer. No, now they're making stuff up. Okay. If his work is successful, he says that he'd be able to create an engine that will get us to Alpha Centauri in two weeks, as measured by the clocks here on Earth. That's what he said, Evan. What am I wow. saying? I, well, I agree okay. with Bob. Well, okay. Looks 
looks good on paper. Well, yeah, this isn't a theoretical <laughs> stage. This is not even engineering. This is just doing calculations to see what the physics would be like. And Somebody the, the has model to do of it. The ship, yeah, the model of the ship is just purely for fun. I mean, you know what I mean? I don't know how it's any relationship to like they're yeah, not engineering this ship. You know what no, I mean? Steve, it's actually <laughs> I don't disagree with them having fun coming up with no absolutely it's gorgeous i love the design but it's also good for inspiration i mean let's face it guys a lot of innovation comes from inspiration so you need people to get excited we need you know more money to flow i mean his budget is so tiny compared to nasa's budget and nasa's budget is way too tiny right so we're not talking about he's not spending a lot of money but we want people to think like this we've got to think big think out of the box and try crazy stuff because sometimes we hit where are the photon torpedoes going? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> now, listen, I, I do have to say this, though. If they build that freaking ship, man, just copy the Enterprise bridge. That's it. Just do that. It's got a science bay, communication well, next, bay, TNG, next generation. Navigation, done. I got it. You got to have the red light. You got to have the dramatic lighting. Yeah, but leave off the, <laughs> yeah. uh, the solar flare generator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Jay. I want a quickie with Bob. Ooh. What? <laughs> yeah, let's do it, Bob. What, what? Oh, wow. I'll be in the other Jay, room. I'm so, I'm so excited. Thank you, Jay. Uh, this, this, <laughs> Don't this get too is excited. Your, <laughs> this is your quickie with Bob. And uh, this week I'm going to talk about astronomers finding the smallest star ever found and possibly the smallest star possible. Um, the name of this guy is a beautiful name. I love it. Two mass J O five two three three eight two two one four O three O two two. Isn't that awesome? I'm just, just going to cool. Uh, just hey, rolls I'm, off the tongue. Yeah, it does. I'm just going to call it Tyrion. Um, it's one eight thousandth <laughs> the brightness of the sun. Eight thousandth with a temperature of eighteen hundred degrees Celsius. That's about a third. Jeez. A third as hot as uh, as our sun. The diameter is also just nine percent of the sun, meaning that it's smaller than Jupiter, which is kind of amazing and obviously it's got to be it's denser otherwise the fusion just wouldn't even happen so it's not that crazy when you think about it the real cool thing though is that it may be at the limit in terms of smallness for a star it's just crazy small and if you if you want some really good details definitely check out phil plate's excellent blog about it on slate.com he does a fantastic treatment of it as usual this thing is so tiny actually that if it was just a notch a notch tinier it wouldn't even be a star it'd just be a brown dwarf so they they really think that it just crossed that threshold of, uh, of becoming a star and to uh, find out why the reason is really interesting there's a there's an unusual relationship between the temperature and mass and size of a star that's kind of count, counterintuitive you know between a star and uh non-stars like like uh, brown dwarfs so and finally uh, it's so star. small how small is it? Finally, it's so small that uh, it it's so dim that it fuses hydrogen so incredibly slowly that it could potentially live for hundreds of billions, if not trillions of years. Um, it could have just an amazing, <laughs> amazing lifespan, which is which is so fun because these super giant stars can live, you know, for th- hundreds of thousands of years, and they have so much more mass, but they just go through it so insanely quick. So that's all I that's all I got. Check out Phil's blog if you want details about it. Uh, fascinating story. This has been your quickie with Bob. I hope it was good for you too. Hey, yeah, Bob. so stars are like light bulbs. Uh. The, the dimmer <laughs> they are, the longer they last. Yeah. All right. Evan, time for Who's That Noisy? Thanks, Steve. I'll play for you last week's Who's That Noisy? A little musical composition for you all, if you recall. Here we go.
Yeah. Yeah, right. Evan, I hope those birds in the background do something funny about that because they just crack me up. <laughs> <laughs> well, the birds in the background should give you an indication that this was probably recorded at a place where there are animals around, you know, birds among them. But what the heck was making that noise or what was playing that keyboard? And, a know, monkey? Something, someone who, some, someone who just a sat bird? down on it or something? Or a plane? No, it is a river otter or river otters, I should say. Mm. Now, does he know he's playing the piano, or are they just making him walk on like piano-like things? No, what they did is they put the Casio keyboard up against its cage, and the otters are reaching their hands through, and they are actually pressing the keys with their paws and their arms. That is adorable. Is there video? Oh, there's, there is video, and it is adorable. And it is making all the rounds on the internet in the last week or so, and that's why there were so many correct answers this yeah, week. But yeah. it, it, was, it was just too cute not to share, I think. And, uh, you know, animals are cool. Uh, so, yeah, real quick background on this. National Zoo. The National Zoo recently gave a band of Asian small-clawed river otters an electric keyboard to muck around with. And uh, that's... that's They're from part, Africa, part and they have big claws, actually. Oh, well, there you go. So why do they okay. call them Asians? <laughs> oh, I, <laughs> you got I me mean, there. <laughs> I, mean, I, nice. I just watched the video. You got me. One of the videos. There's one yeah. of them that actually has both his paws through... The, the grate, right? Because it's it's like a pretty much it's a crisscross grate. Yep. And he's got both his hands through through it, and he's playing it like a real keyboardist. And he's like, "Come on, he's enjoying himself." You could tell. You can tell that. Yeah, they they they're getting a kick out of it, definitely. So, um, you know, it's it's, it's you know clever. I think you know give give a give an animal a toy or whatever, see what it'll do with it, and you you just never know. Not surprise, not surprising all that much, but you know, just it's cool and really, really cute. Um, and uh, again, we knew we, a lot of people would get this one correctly. It is making the rounds, but there's only one winner each week. This week's winner is Enrique Bustamante. Congratulations, Enrique! Enrique, hope to see you at the end of the year in the final drawing, and you might be joining us for an episode of Science or Fiction. Let's see what happens in early 2015. Wow, half the year is almost over. It's hard to believe. Okie doke. So, moving on. Brand new Who's That Noisy for this week. This one is not otters, I can guarantee you that. It is a voice. A voice. Perhaps from the past, perhaps from the future. Who knows? Let's find out. Here we go. I don't eat anything that's, you know, junk food, like processed, horrible chemicals. And I try to eat as organically as possible. Yep. No chemicals. There's no chemicals in any food that this person eats, apparently. We'll reveal it next week, but we would love your guess. I think you've got some thoughts on this one. WTN at theskepticsguide.org is the official email for Who's That Noisy? Guesses and submissions. Or go ahead and put it on our forums, sguforums.com. Look for the subforum called Who's That Noisy? Each week I enter a, uh, a little post there, and you can go ahead and uh, leave it there as well. I check that. Um, I wanted to give out a quick credit to uh, our listener Bimo Seponen from Japan who several weeks ago uh, we had played that alpaca, the alpaca's mating uh, noisy and I had, um, that was submitted by Bimo back in 2012 so I wanted to uh, make sure that he got proper credit for that so thank you for that and of course as I say every week and I will continue to say good luck everyone. Thank you Evan Alright let's go to the emails I don't know how many we're going to get through today. Let's see. First one comes from Rick Reese in Boston. And Rick, not Rick Ross. Don't get confused. (laughs) 
And he writes, <laughs> non-science efforts, alternative med and now here religion, create their own journals because they can't publish in real journals and then promote this absolute crap. I can hear Jay absolutely losing his mind about this, which paradoxically is helping me to keep mine. Then he gives a link to uh, a journal article and says that this is just the worst. So the journal is the Journal of Religion and Health. Hmm. Hmm. The article published June 2014 uh, by a Kamal Ermak is entitled Schizophrenia or Possession. (laughs) Uh. He says... Demonic possession can manifest with a range of bizarre behaviors, which could be interpreted as a number of different psychotic disorders with delusions and hallucinations. The hallucination in schizophrenia may therefore be an illusion, a false interpretation of a real sensory image formed by demons. A local faith healer in our region helps the patients with schizophrenia. His method of treatment seems to be successful because his patients become symptom-free after three months. Therefore, it would be useful for medical professions to work together with faith healers to define better treatment pathways for schizophrenia. This might as well have been written in 1538. What utter drivel. (laughs) This is absolutely horrific and dangerous. And this is not the first time I've encountered this claim that people who are schizophrenic really are possessed by demons. That's great. Let's replace our modern psychiatric neuroscientific uh, understanding of mental illness with medieval superstition. Yeah, that's, so therefore, these poor people w- won't get real treatment. They'll get laying of hands or whatever from some religion or some such, right? So, yeah, that's a real great way to go down, you know, with, with poor these people that are so screwed up that they think that they're possessed. They're, Jay, they're, now, Jay, don't lose your mind. <laughs> so, <laughs> careful, it's careful. worse than that, though, Jay. It's worse than that because the absolute worst thing you could do to somebody who has a delusional disorder is reinforce yeah. their delusions. Right. So, they're not only being treated with... Hocus pocus, instead of actual medicine, they are being told your delusions are real. You know, those voices you're hearing in your head are not a symptom of an illness that needs to be treated. It's demons. You know, imagine that. Gee, and how does one, let's see, what's the treatment for demonic possession? Oh, oh yeah, exorcism. Gee, hmm. I I totally don't buy this claim in the the abstract of the article here that this guy is, is... healing these patients that they're symptom free what happens is when these because these cases have been examined uh, you know where you take somebody who almost certainly has schizophrenia i mean they meet the diagnosis of schizophrenia and they, they believe they're that they've incorporated their families or their their religious belief system into their delusions which is common and uh, they believe they're possessed by demons if you do an exorcism on them because they're role-playing being possessed by a demon yeah, they'll they'll not be possessed by a demon for a time, but then they have you know one hundred percent relapse rate. Yeah, repossession because they're still just they're still schizophrenic. So there's, there's at best a temporary change in their behavior because they're playing along with the script of the demonic possession that they believe that they have. For a little background, just because in case there's any confusion out there, so schizophrenia, the word schizophrenia does not refer to split personality. That so I don't know how that got into the the lay public the, the vernacular. It's not true. Schizophrenia is a it's a neurological disorder. It's a disorder disorder of the brain. 
um, in which uh, people are have a, a chronic delusions. They have fixed beliefs that are separate from reality and can't be changed with evidence. And they uh, have they're, they're it's characterized by hallucinations, both either auditory or visual. They hear and see things that aren't there. They believe that they're real often, and in fact that they the like they have auditory hallucinations. They believe that they have a special significance for them, right? That it's directed at them. It's somebody speaking to them. You know, there's emotional content to it as well. Um, and it's interesting to try to figure out, like, what what's the circuit that's misfiring in the brain? Is it the reality testing module that's not kicking in? Is it something else that's over-functioning? It's, it's, you know, or maybe it's different things in different people. It is probably just a category of multiple disorders, not a very discrete entity. Like, for example, not all schizophrenics have the paranoid type. You know, they have paranoia, although a lot do, of course. So it's a serious mental illness. And again, claiming that it's demonic possession and recommending that people be treated based upon that hypothesis is malfeasance. It's malpractice. Uh, it's absolutely horrific to suggest this. And the the idea that this would get published as a serious peer-reviewed journal is embarrassing. It just shows that this journal is a rag. Well, guys, we have to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Personal Capital. Guys, Personal Capital solves two barriers in growing your, your personal wealth. And the first one is that it's hard to keep track of all your stocks, your 401k, your bank accounts. You know, they're typically all with different passwords on different websites and everything. And the second one is, you know, you pay someone to manage all of your money for you, and you probably are paying too much for that. It's very typical. But personal capital brings all of your accounts together and all of your assets together in one single screen. You log in, and they're all in front of you on your computer, your phone, your tablet, with a very intuitive interface with graphs and everything you need to track all of your finances. Yeah, and here's a nice thing about it, is that they show you how much you overpay in your fees for all of these accounts and everything, but they also show you how to reduce those fees. And you get tailored advice on optimizing your investments. So what could be better than that? So there's, there's really no reason to wait. Signing up takes just a minute and it'll pay big dividends. Personal Capital gives you total clarity and transparency to make better investment decisions right away. Yeah, and even if you're just a regular person with not a lot of big investments to make, you know, it's really convenient to have this one free secure tool where you can organize all of your various accounts, etc. So give it a look. Go to personalcapital.com forward slash SGU. That's personalcapital.com slash SGU. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. It's time for science or fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. And I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Are you guys ready for this week? Yeah, we're always ready. Yeah. Challenge accepted. You guys all lost last week. I just want to point that out to you. Rebecca, out of spite, pulled out, you know, kept me from sweeping you. All right. Uh-huh. Here's, here's what we got. Out of, out of spite. I, I almost went with the other one, too. I kicked myself after that show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here we go. Item number one, a new study concludes that the internet is not responsible for the decline of the newspaper industry. Item number two, scientists have discovered the most ancient fox ancestor, an Arctic breed found with gnawed mammoth bones indicating the foxes were scavengers. And item number three, engineers have developed a method for creating inflatable concrete domed structures 
and have built the first test structure. Evan, go first. The new study concluding the internet is not responsible for the decline of the newspaper industry. I think this one is going to turn out to be science. Maybe it has a factor. The internet is a factor in it, but not the prevailing factor, not the majority factor. It's one thing. Um, look, there's so many, so many more pieces of uh, ways to go about getting getting information, even, um, well, beyond the internet. Like what? Look, there's a lot more, uh, t- frankly, television channels and, and, these, and these sorts of things. News programs, you know, there's a whole news industry on your on your television on your idiot box right i mean you used to there was a day where you only had you know four three or four basic news related channels that you could tune into and a few others thrown in there maybe pbs or something remember that old joke about the soviet union they only have two channels yeah well one channel is government propaganda and on the other channel is a kgb agent saying turn back to the other channel yeah yeah it's that's Evening, the <laughs> Very nice. Very nice. So that, that's one example. Uh, so I think multiple factors are in play here. Um, next one. Scientists have discovered the most ancient fox ancestor. Ooh. An Arctic breed found with gnawed mammoth bones indicating the foxes were scavengers. Uh, I don't know about this one. It seems too perfectly kind of placed. You know, hey, we found these bones here and we found this here. And therefore, we're going to come to the conclusion that... Uh, these things definitely gnawed these uh, these bones and we scab. Yeah, I don't know. It, it's it's almost like it's set up too pretty and there's a missing peg here. Um, something we're not seeing. So I don't know about that one. Last one. Engineers have developed a method for creating inflatable concrete domed structures and have built the first test structure. I guess what? How does that work? You have a shell of concrete and I guess inside is is air and you get you, you know the concrete is still in some sort of soft stage. You put it in a skeleton of some kind to give it its rigidity and then let it sit. I guess, is that technically inflating it? I don't know about this one. Hmm. I wouldn't be surprised, though, that they came up with something like this, domed structures. Well, I'm having a problem with this foxes and the mammoth bones one. And uh, foxes, mammoth, bones, that one's the fiction. Okay, Bob. Let's see. You said decline of the newspaper industry. Yeah, I mean, I always assumed it was that the internet played a, a huge part. But the 24-hour news cycle, I think, kind of seems to coincide. Um, I could see how that could be uh, take a, a, a surprising chunk out of it. I mean, if you really, if you really just want the news, just you know, there's so many channels you can go to. I'd be curious to see though what the ratios are that they discovered. So that was it seems plausible. Uh, the inflatable concrete, yeah, that seems wacky. Totally. Uh, but I mean, I could imagine that they've got, they've got some weird concrete mesh or something, some sort of lightweight concrete, uh, panels that kind of interlock once they reach a certain orientation that could kind of, that could kind of create a strong enough dome structure. I can kind of see that. The Fox one, yeah, there's just something that's rubbing me wrong about that. Yeah. I, I mean, I could, I could, I see, I see images in my head of documentaries of these, these fox-like creatures in, in the Arctic and stuff. But still, there's just something that I can't quite put my finger on. I might be wrong with that one. Uh, and the other ones, I, I can kind of make an argument for. They seem a little obvious. So I'll go with the fox as well. Fiction. All right. And Jay. Yeah, this first one about the about the internet hurting the uh, the newspaper, you know, even just print industry. Absolutely, everyone, everyone believed that. And, uh, you know, I've heard that this question come up actually many times whether or not that is the case and you know they talk about um 
you know, I work uh, with a marketing department, even though I'm a software engineer, and I hear a lot about marketing. And you know, this, the things like this do come up from time to time. I can see how someone would um, would do a study on this. I, I, I didn't read about it or don't know specifically about it, but I, I don't see why anyone wouldn't do a study and couldn't conclude. You know, there's lots of different things that have to do with why print and newspaper have been on the decline, and it really isn't just where's where people's attention is. Uh, it, there's a there's economy, I believe, that has to do with that. So okay, so I could see that. Yes, yeah, one about the foxes. You know, I'm thinking about it. Now we have this ancient fox ancestor that lives in the Arctic, and it had mammoth bones. It was found with gnawed mammoth bones, which means that um, it died very soon after eating mammoth bones, which means that mammoth bones are poisonous, <laughs> which means that we shouldn't bring back the mammoths. But that doesn't help me with the news item at all. Right, okay, so it, it was gnawing on these bones, therefore it, it was eating bones. Now, Evan and Bob, you don't like this one, huh? I mean, I can Man. see what you're saying. From the game perspective, this one is just tied up in a nice, neat little box. And there's really, I, I disagree. Why do I disagree? There's no reason to disagree. It must be the fake. You know, I, that's how my, my logic right now is working with that. Let's go on to the third one. Uh, engineers have developed this method for creating inflatable, the inflatable concrete dome. I have no reason to, to believe that they didn't do that. So now it's between the newspaper thing and, you know, I have to go with you guys then since I, I can't really say why I don't like the uh, the Fox one. But since you guys are both going for it, I will go for it, too, because I failed last week and I don't want to be alone. <laughs> ah, there's room for everyone. All right. So you guys are all in agreement. So it's either going to be a very good week or a very bad week for you guys. All right. Well, I guess we could take these in order. Let's start with number one. A new study concludes that the Internet is not responsible for the decline of the newspaper industry. You guys all think this one is science. And this one is science. Whoa, okay, so tell us all about it. Yeah, was it, what's the Was, what's it, the was it TV? Was it TV? Yeah, it's actually due to space aliens. <laughs> I knew I it. I knew it. So, all right, this was a research by University of Chicago Booth School of business professor Matthew Genskow, and he says that the claim that the internet is what's killing journalism is based upon three false premises. And his study shows that one is that you can't make the same ad money online as you can offline. And he says that this is due to uh, making a false comparison. That if you if you compare how much it costs to have like one hour of one eyeball's attention on your ad, you know, if you break it down that way, mm-hmm. that actually you get more money for online ads than for print ads. In 2008, he calculated that newspapers earn $2.78 per hour of attention in print and $3.79 per hour of attention online. And by 2012, print had fallen to $1.57 while online had increased to $4.24. It's not true, basically, that you can't have, that you can't make money with online advertising, basically. Um, he also said that, uh, the newspaper industry was already in significant decline between 1980 and 1995 and that this rate did not change after oh, the internet. Oh, wow. It continued oh. pretty much unabated right through the internet. Well, there you go. That's pretty solid there, there right there. Is. So the other, the other assumption he said is that the web has made the advertising market more competitive driving down rates. He said that's not true. 
Um, so anyway, so yeah, so his analysis was nope, the industry, the internet does not seem to be the critical factor in the decline of either ad revenue or the newspaper industry. But Very he doesn't, but he doesn't identify what it, what it was. It's just people are not reading. People oh, that, are not reading yeah, as much. I could buy that. Oh, that's um, kind of sad. I mean, the study didn't really, wasn't designed to say it, but that, that's what, that was the speculation. Um, okay, we'll go on to number two. Scientists have discovered the most ancient fox ancestor, an Arctic breed found with gnawed mammoth bones, indicating the foxes were scavengers. You guys all think this one is the fiction. Now, would you believe it's that fiction. scientists it's have discovered an extinct fox species with super sharp teeth from Tibet, which supports the out-of-Tibet hypothesis of fox origins. Did you know there was an out-of-Tibet hypothesis? I was no. not aware of that. Out-of-Tibet? Wow. Yeah, Out-of-Tibet. Uh, it probably was an Arctic variety because of where uh-huh. it was. Uh-oh. And Say it. Just say it. Yeah. So very interesting. And <laughs> uh, Come on. Keep, keep it going, Steve. Stretch it. Stretch it. From how, how long ago do you think foxes go back? Um, oh. uh, five uh, months, ten months, twenty um, million, uh, no. five point three million years. So this Thank this, this species, was <laughs> <laughs> Jay was closer than Bob. Lived between five point three and two point six million years ago. Vulpes kizhudingi, right? <laughs> that, that, that also known as Vulpe. Vulpe. Right. Vulpe. So this fox was. <laughs> Not a scavenger, so this one is the fiction. <gasps> yeah. Yay. Yeah. All right. It had the teeth of a super carnivore. Ooh. <gasps> wow. Why were they super? Because, I don't know, because of the, all the nasty, sharp teeth. Hunted probably lots of small animals. Quite well, I'm Called sure. It, yeah, hyper carnivore. Hyper. hyper. Um, don't you love that hypernova. word? Yeah. yeah. Hypernova. That's such a cool thing. Shrews, voles, squirrels. And Pikas, P-I-K-A-S. You guys ever hear of that? Pikachu. Pikas. <laughs> yeah, it looks like it's a cute little mouse-like creature. It looks like a half mouse, half half rabbit. Oh wow! Oh yeah, with Ear kind of bunny. big ears. Cute. Yeah, but it doesn't look little. like it's a rodent. It's in the order Lagomorpha. There's a website called PikaWorks, all about Pikas. They're cute. Yeah. So these nasty foxes ate them, apparently. But They're no, mammals. no mam, no mammoths, no mammoth bones. No mammoth bones. But guys, if you, if, if you found like a cave, yeah, there were, you know, the, the bones of a meat eater in there and then the bones of another animal that had scavenger tooth marks on it. Well, that's pretty good evidence that, you know, the meat eater was a scavenger. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was, on at, at least, at, least mm-hmm. at, t- at times. We are able to tell that for humans. Do you know how? So like Australopithecines probably were scavengers. How do we know that? By their teeth. By the poop. No, no. Um, because the bones we found with them have stone tool marks on top of the tooth marks of whatever killed them. Oh, yeah. damn. I should have known that. Uh, <laughs> they need to cover up their evidence better, I tell you. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's go on to number three. Engineers have developed a method for creating inflatable concrete dome structures and have built the first test structure. And that, of course, is science. This was interesting. Uh, so, you know, if you're building a concrete dome with traditional methods, you have to build a structure, you know, a timber yeah. case for it to put the, the concrete in. With this method, they have like an inflatable balloon under on the bottom. Then they create the flat concrete slabs in a very specific geometric pattern on top. And then they inflate the, the dome underneath it and it sort of, it locks 
the cement wedges into place, you know, like stones in an arch, you know, so that they support yeah. each other. Yeah. Capstone. Oh, okay. Yeah. So when, when I first saw that, I'm like, oh, cool. I thought that the cement was like only was still wet, you know, and then they inflated it and then it would harden in a dome, but they harden it flat and then they assemble it by inflating it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Whoa. So that's kind yeah. of so they build all they build all the pieces first, and they use the dome, the inflation yeah, process just to, support, to assemble. Yeah. Just to, just very, to assemble very them. clever. Yeah, and then so the wedges kind of fit together, and I guess the wedges will will they're flexible enough that they'll flex into that dome shape. And they say that little micro cracks occur, or little cracks occur, but it's no big deal because that would happen anyway. And then and then you could go back at the end of it all, and you can plaster over it. Oh, okay. Yeah. So. To fix all of the whatever cracks appear, mm-hmm. all the and tiny it, cracks that they say, and that doesn't impact the integrity. Then I guess those cracks. They say, oh, they say the tiny cracks don't have, a, they don't affect the stability of the shell, and you can plaster them over at the end. And they built a little building, but that was two point nine meters high, so pretty cool. Yeah, very cool. I'd like to see that. Yeah, inflatable concrete dome. This was the Vienna University of Technology. All right, so you guys all got me this week. Good job. Thank you. Now, yeah, I have to right. say, however, that the fiction, just the fiction, the one about the foxes, that that exact fiction was submitted by a listener, David Brown. So it's David. Oh, oh. very cool. Thanks, Which David. Nice job, David Brown. Best, Which means I get to blame David for this week's oh. news. Yeah, and to That's... our listeners, when you guys submit any of these fiction items, send them to uh, to Jay at the Skeptics Guy. <laughs> there's, there's something there. Brown and Fox. Huh? David Brown Fox jumps over the lazy mammoth. There you go. I tied it all together. That's nice, good work, Evan. Nice job. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. That took me 10 seconds. Jay, quote now. Quote me. Hit it. That, is that the way you address me? It's mis- it's Mr. J, okay? <laughs> Dr. Doctor, Dr. J. Dr. J. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> The whirlwind jam. This is a quote from a listener named Zamina coming from Switzerland. And the quote is, Anyone is entitled to have his hunch, but before a hunch can attain even the modest dignity of an informed guess, it needs to be shaped by an understanding of the evidence. Who said that? Thomas Charles Edwards. All right. Thomas Charles Edwards. T.C. Edwards. Guy has three first names. He's a emeritus fellow. Emeritus. Emeritus. <laughs> emeritus fellow, formerly professor of Celtic at Oxford University. He's saying hunches are nice, but evidence is what really is important. Well, guys, we're going to be at TAM in a few weeks. <gasps> yep. Oh, boy. Las Vegas South Point Hotel. It's coming up quick. I can't wait. July 11th to 13th. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, Bill Nye, the science guy, is going to be there. Yo, Billy. Bill. We got to oh, interview him again. He's always great. Yeah. Bo- awesome guy. Bow tie and all. If you haven't registered for the conference yet, don't forget to use the SGU TAM 2014 registration code to get your $25 discount and also sign up for the SGU dinner. Uh, and don't forget that if you become a premium member of the SGU, that you get access to premium content. We have 28 pieces of premium content up right now. There you go. To. Hours and of mo- extra content and more to come. And hey, Steve, come. I have a, I have an announcement. Yeah, it's uh, two quickie announcements. This is the first ever Brisbane Skeptic Camp, and it's it's since actually 2009. The event will be held on Saturday, the 19th, on July 2014. It is completely free and open. The event will feature 12 local skeptics: Loretta Moran of Friends in Science and Medicine, and John Cook. 
The event will also feature a live podcast performance of Skeptically Challenged, and I was recently on this podcast with George Rabb, and this is going live. Uh, by the time you hear this, it'll be up. It's uh, www.brisskeptiamp.org. All right, guys. Well, thanks for joining me this week. Share us, Dave. Thanks, Doctor. We love you. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. And now that the show's over, don't forget to sign up for your free account with Personal Capital right now. With Personal Capital, you'll finally be able to see all your accounts in one place and get a clear view of everything you own. To sign up for free, go to theskepticsguide.org and click on the Personal Capital banner, or go to personalcapital.com forward slash SGU. Personal Capital, less fees, more Gs.